Next up, we have Belinda Smith. Bell Smith. Uh, oh, that's, uh, that's nice. Uh, Bell, Bell Smith, failed medical researcher Bell Smith, became a journalist after David Astle told her she should, while on the set of Letters and Numbers, true story. Um, now a science writer, specialising in old stuff, big stuff and far away stuff, her works appeared in publications such as The Australian, Cosmos Magazine and The Best Australian Science Writing 2016. In her spare time, she goes on long runs in the shape of animals. Bell. Thank you, AJ. Um, I have to say my favourite scientists are the ones that really tested their own theories on themselves. So, Barry Marshall drank the H. pylori, gave himself a few little stomach ulcers. Um, British neurologist snipped, um, Henry Head snipped some nerves in his arm and waited patiently for them to grow back. Um, but while researching these awesome human self-guinea pigs, I came across a man who is the baddest badass of them all. And once I tell you his story, you'll be in total agreement. Uh, his name was Colonel John Paul Stapp, PhD and MD. He was born in 1910 in Brazil to some missionary parents. Um, he was homeschooled uh, and then sent to Texas for uh, his formal high school education. Uh, in high school, he wanted to be a writer, like I am. Um, but when he was 19 and had started college, he uh, unfortunately witnessed his two-year-old cousin fall into a fire, um, be treated by a doctor who didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, he watched his two-year-old cousin die, um, and the 19-year-old staff decided then and there he wanted to save lives. Um, that meant going to medical school. Um, missionaries don't really, or didn't really have all that much money back then. So he went on, got his master's in zoology, his PhD in biophysics, scraped together enough money to go into medical school and at the ripe old age of 29, went off, studied medicine uh, and graduated in 1944 at the tail end of World War II. Um, World War II was a war primarily fought in the air, um, so uh, John Paul Stapp joined the Air Force and went into active duty. But instead of going out into the, uh, into the war, he went into research. And his first assignment was seeing if he could find a way to stop pilots from getting the bends. So the bends is most often associated with divers who come from a, uh, a very deep position in the ocean, perhaps, to where the pressure is really high to a very low pressure area very quickly. Pilots go from, say, sea level, for instance, straight up in the air. And that's going from very, well, relatively high pressure to low pressure. While divers have the luxury of coming up very slowly, and so the bends, for those who don't know, sorry, um, is when nit nitrogen, which is dissolved in your bloodstream, bubbles and becomes little nit nitrogen bubbles. That can cause all sorts of medical havoc. Um, while divers have that luxury of coming up very gently and stopping those bubbles from forming, pilots in the war just don't have that luxury. So, Stapp decided, who else better to see what the effects of high-altitude flying were than him? So he spent 65 hours flying through the stratosphere. Uh, eventually, he found that if you inhale pure oxygen before going up, you don't get the bends. Amazing, right? And that's still used today. Pretty cool. So as a, a bit of a pat on the back for doing that, in 1946, he was given another assignment. And this was examining the effects of rapid human deceleration. In other words, plane crashes. So in World War II, more planes were destroyed than there are planes on Earth today. 
Okay. So lots of pilots crashed. Um, a lot of pilots, uh, they, they, they experience so many G-forces. So a G-force, for instance, is the force that you feel... So one G is a force that you feel through your feet at sea level. If you're, for instance, in a car and you accelerate quite quickly, you might feel you're being pushed back in the seat a bit. That's a G-force acting on you. It's a force associated with accelerating or decelerating. So it was at the time, people thought that perhaps the human limit for G-forces was about 18 Gs, okay? That's pretty high. Um, astronauts on the space shuttle, they might experience three Gs. Uh, an F1 car that's braking really, really hard might experience about six Gs, okay? So 18 Gs was the limit, so all the military cockpits were designed to withstand an 18 G impact. Stapp thought that might not be quite right, because there were a lot of pilots that walked away from crashes which would have exerted much more than 18 Gs on them, but then there were other pilots that died in much lower magnitude crashes. So what was going on there? He wanted to find out. So, in 1947, he went to LA, uh, went out to the desert, where there was a big sled track which was designed to test missiles, right? And on the sled track, there was a special sled called the G-Wiz, which I love because it's punny. Um, the G-Wiz was a sled fully enclosed, about the same dimensions as a Toyota Hilux. Um, it weighed about 700 kilograms, and on the back, you could sit four rocket boosters. So these boosters were designed to lift really heavy aircraft off really short runways. Each booster exerted about two tonnes of thrust, okay? So they're pretty big. Um, the sled, the G-Wiz, was... It could have one occupant, and that occupant was supposed to be a dummy. But when John Paul Stapp saw the dummy, called Oscar 8-Ball, which I love, um, he allegedly went and patted the dummy on the head and said, we won't be needing you. I'll be the subject, okay? So, at one end of the sled, at uh, one end of the track, sorry, was a sled with its four giant rocket boosters. At the other end of the sled were hydraulic brakes, and you could control how hard or soft those brakes stopped the sled, and that's how you could kind of um, uh, tweak the whole system to exert different, type, different forces on the occupant of the sled. Of course, before you could put John Paul Stapp in the sled, you had to test it out. Um, so they tried a few, a few test runs with Oscar. Uh, in one of them, Oscar travelling backwards because the sled was designed so that you travelled backwards. Uh, he was wearing a, you know, a fairly flimsy kind of harness, but you know, a pretty standard harness. All four rockets blazing, 320 kilometres an hour. Boom, hits the brakes, the brakes lock up. Oscar experiences 30 Gs of force. Oscar's face falls off, lands in the seat in front of him. He bursts through the inch-thick wooden windshield and lands 200 metres away. <laughs> so, a couple of weeks later, John Paul Stapp decides it's his turn. Um, didn't go the full four rockets, thank God. Um, decided to just go one. So he sat backwards in the seat, which is how he was supposed to. Uh, he had loads of sensors on his body so that they could measure the acceleration and deceleration on different bits. He was offered an anaesthetic. He said, no thanks. I'd like to feel what it's like both physically and mentally. Um, and um, boom, off he went. One rocket. He hit 145 kilometres an hour. Pfft, fine. 
no worries. The second run, the same day, three rockets. Who needs two? Um, <laughs> 320 kilometres now this time. It's pretty fast. Stopped pretty quickly. He was fine. So he actually did 16 all up on the G-Wiz. He uh, got to 18 Gs. He got more than 18 Gs. He got to 35 Gs at one point. Um, obviously, this is not without its issues. He had cracked ribs, concussion, uh, he lost some fillings, <laughs> broke his collarbone and dinged his wrist twice um, throughout this whole thing as well because when you accelerate really quickly, the blood in your body acts like beer in a pint when you trip, right? So it would slosh back and forth in his head so his vision was impaired to say the least. Um, I think we're all, we all know what a blackout is, right? It's when you lose your vision but you're still conscious. There's also a thing called a grey out, it's when you lose your colour vision. And then there's a thing called a red out, and that's when you burst all the capillaries in your eyes and you just have bright red bleeding eyes. And he had that a lot. <laughs> um, during this time, there was a captain, Captain Edward Murphy Jr. And this is, I didn't know this until I started researching this guy and this makes me so happy. Uh, this guy, Captain Edward Murphy, designed a new harness. It had 16 sensors on it, and he popped it on John Paul Stapp. And each sensor had two kind of positions. There was either the position where it would work and the position that it wouldn't work. Captain Murphy, you might know where I'm going here, set them all. John Paul Stapp, bang, off he goes. Ex experiences 30 Gs. Tosses off the sled, all bleeding from everything. Um, and they read all the sensors. Every sensor comes up zero because Captain Murphy had set them all wrong, each one separately wrong. He'd put them all in the wrong position. And that is where Murphy's Law comes from. <laughs> That's true. I read it in the New York Times. It's true. Okay, so after a couple of, uh, a few months of this high-speed fanging through the, the desert, um, Steps higher ups decided to find out what was actually going on here. And so he submitted a report with all his own, you know, he, he had dummy tests, he had some chimpanzee tests as well. He had a couple of other volunteers, but mostly it was him. And the top brass were just like, dude, what? What are you doing? Paraphrasing. And he was like, no, it's cool, just read the rest of the report and you'll be fine. So they did, and they were like, wow, people can actually withstand more than 18 Gs. That's incredible. Let's raise all the standards of the military aircraft to 32 Gs a standard. Let's do that for a start. Let's redesign all the harnesses, all the seats, all the helmets, everything, so it can withstand these high-impact, really like crunching collisions that the pilots generally had to endure. And so those pilots that may have uh, that, that died in what seemingly were low magnitude um, crashes in World War II. At least some of them, they think, were alive after the collision. It was just all the mangled infrastructure and stuff around them that killed them after the crash itself. So it's pretty good. So he kept going. He did a few like forward tests, um, and then then what did he do? Oh yes. So he decided then that he would do some forward tests. And of course, going forward is a little, little bit trickier. Um, 
but he found out that actually going backwards is better for the human body. Um, so while you know your jet star plane, you're still facing forward. Military aircraft tend to have their passengers sitting facing backwards. So if it does crash, then they're a bit more protected. We should be sitting backwards on planes. Um, following the gee whiz, um, Stapp decided he would look at something a bit more extreme, if that wasn't extreme enough, right? He wanted to look at ejector seats. What would happen if a pilot ejected a plane going faster than the speed of sound? Uh, this required a longer track, a faster sled. So he went out to the New Mexico desert where there was a one kilometre track being built and he and his engineers built a new sled called the Sonic Wind. It was a little bit bigger than the Gee Whiz. It wasn't enclosed. It was, you can Google this, it was just pipes welded together with a seat and a windshield which you could have or not. Of course, he didn't have it, just took it off. Um, and 12 rockets on the back. A bit more than the four than before. Um, so in 1953, on March 19th, he went on his maiden run. Uh, a journalist asked him how he felt beforehand and he said, I'm not looking forward to this. Just fair enough. On his first run, he went six rockets. He got to 680 kilometres an hour in five seconds. When he hit the brake, he was going at 500 kilometres an hour. Mad dog. Anyway, he was fine. It's all good. But he kept pushing the envelope, pushing and pushing. And December 1953, on his 29th ride and his final ride, uh, he decided he'd go, let's go nine, nine rockets this time. Uh, no windshield, protected only by a suit and a helmet and a visor, a rubber bite wedge so he didn't obliterate his mouth, which had an accelerometer in it as well because you know you need to take care of these things. Um, and then, boom, it was blast off time. 10 metre fire out the back. He was going faster than a bullet. He was travelling at 90% the speed of sound, or 0.9, mark 0.9. When he got the brakes, he was travelling at 1,017 kilometres an hour. He came to a dead stop in 1.4 seconds. In that time, he reached a maximum of 46.2 Gs. Uh, of that 1.4 seconds of braking time, he spent 1.1 seconds at 25 Gs, which is insanity. Um, think about in terms of, you know, real life. When I say real life, I mean real life. Imagine crashing your Lamborghini at 200 kilometres an hour into a brick wall. It's like that, except the maximum impact time is nine times longer. Um, in pilot terms, that's the same as ejecting from a jet travelling at 1.6 times the speed of sound, at 40 feet, 40,000 feet rather. Um, so he's, he's, he's stopped. He's just a lone man on a bunch of welded pipes. Rockets spent behind him. Um, colleagues, ambulance, they all to the scene. They like, they unstrap his helmet and they look at him and it's, it's just blood everywhere. But he's fine, he's alive, he's okay. You thought he was dead, but he's not, he's alive. <laughs> and he is loving it, he even manages a smile. You look it up, you see a video, he's like, uh, uh. 
might be a grimace of pain, I think it's a smile. He's completely read it out. He's burst every single capillary in his eyes. Um, as he fanged through at 1,000 kilometres an hour, little tiny specks of dust hanging in the desert air punch through his suit, blisters, grazes all over his body. Uh, when they picked him up and put him on a stretcher, he couldn't see, funnily enough. Uh, they thought that maybe his retinas had detached in that time. But when the doctors examined him, no, no, they were, they were still attached. Within a couple of hours, he could st sort of start to see shapes. Uh, the next day, his vision was pretty much back to normal. So, pretty badass guy. Um, so, yes, like I said, that was his last, his last ride. Um, he set a land speed record doing that, fastest man alive at the time. First thing he did was get married. He said he wouldn't get married until he finished all that. He didn't want his wife to be married to a streak of gore on the desert floor. Um, of course, you know, that means he got a lot of media, being the fastest man alive. He made the front cover of the Time magazine. Fantastic. And he wasn't really a big media tart. He didn't really want to be in the public eye. But he, during this time, realised that the Air Force were losing as many people to automobile accidents as they were to plane crashes. And he saw that his work could be used in cars. And of course, back then, cars, there were no safety features, didn't have to have seat belts. Um, so he spent the next decade or so lobbying for seat belts, uh, lobbying also for shock absorbing dashes and uh, steering wheels. And in 1966, when LBJ signed into law that all new cars have to be built with seat belts installed, he was there by his side. Um, in that decade, he wasn't resting on his laurels. It's not really his style, I don't think. Um, in '55, he was part of Project Manhigh. This sent men in, they were all men back then, um, in tiny little metallic capsules up uh, on weather balloons up into the middle stratosphere. It was the first step into the space program. He did all this three years before NASA was formed. He won a buttload of awards. He authored loads and loads of articles. He was president of every rocket society ever known. Um, and he retired as a colonel in 1970 and died in his sleep at home, no geez, in New Mexico at the age of 89. Um, when he was doing all these experiments, um, even doing, he was doing a lot of zero G work. He had a really good friend called Joe Kittinger who was with him the whole time and Joe, when told about the death of his friend, said, I hope St Peter has his seatbelt on when Do Dr Stapp shows up. <laughs> and that's my story. Thank you.